Welcome everyone and welcome to Freedom is the Cure, where we aim to show that whatever the societal ailment, freedom is always the cure. I'm Paul Dragu. Thanks for tuning in. So I don't go to a grocery store often. My wife does most of our shopping. When I do go, I notice that everything costs more than it did the last time I was there. Eggs, milk, meat, ice cream, cheese. Just about everything we like to eat has a new price sticker whenever I go to the store. The only thing that stay the same or hasn't become too expensive, as far as I've seen, are the prices of water refills and bananas. We're drinking a lot more water these days and our potassium levels are pretty good. So like with most American families, this massive surge in food prices and everything else really over the last two years has made things financially tougher for us. We've had to make major adjustments in every part of our life with a financial component attached to it, which is almost everything. This is reflective of all average American families today, as we all struggle with higher costs of food, gasoline, heating, travel, business costs, and so much more. This massive surge in prices all around, we're told, is inflation. It's a hot topic. Supposedly, it was the number one issue with voters going into the midterms. Oddly enough, voters somehow forgot to make the connection between the political leaders in power and their dwindling savings accounts. Go figure. Despite everyone talking about inflation, barely anyone seems to know what it actually is. Inflation, the public is led to believe, is a general rise in prices, like the one we are living through right now. Sometimes the geniuses in corporate media have even tried to convince people that a rise in prices is good for us. Why inflation can actually be good for everyday Americans and bad for rich people, says a silly headline from CNN Business. Why you should be happy about inflation and worried about something else, top economist Brad DeLong says, is another asinine headline, this one from Fortune. And like so much of the drivel spewing out of mainstream communication spigots, not only are astronomical rise in prices of no benefit to the middle class, but the prevailing definition of inflation is wrong. What inflation really is, is the creation by government in partnership with the banking system of new money that's not backed by precious metals such as gold and silver. A rise in prices is a symptom of inflation, not inflation itself. Inflation is the unrestrained creation of fiat money. What we are experiencing, the real inflation, is happening because we have a money system that has been corrupted. So in this episode, we're discussing how inflation is theft, how it destroys the middle class while making the elites richer, and how inflation enables nonstop wars and conflicts. But before we dive in, please remember to follow our social media and podcast channels and like and share this episode. Like with most truth tellers, Big Tech has restricted our message heavily and we need your help in spreading the word. So joining me to discuss inflation is executive senior editor of the New American Magazine, Steve Bonta. Welcome to Freedom is the Cure, Steve. Hi, Paul, thanks. Thanks for coming on, I'm glad to have you on. Um, My pleasure. By the way, before we get started, I wanted everyone to know that me and Steve did not plan to wear the same exact clothes. Well, they're not exactly exact, but they're pretty close. We didn't plan this, so I just wanted to let that get that just out of the way. It's a great cosmic coincidence. <laughs> so let me start out with uh, something easy. In the collector's edition from the New American, The Great Reset and Transhumanism, you wrote a story called Destroying the Money. And so I wanted to start out with uh, something semi-provocative, and that is, is inflation theft? We've, we've heard that. I've read that in various pieces. Can, can, that, can you 
How do you feel about that、uh, characteristic? Okay, well, the short answer is yes, it's theft. The, the answer you're probably looking for is how and why could we make such a claim? Because people don't usually think of inflation as as a crime. But it is, in fact, and it's it's theft for the simple reason that the the, the long-term and sometimes short-term effect of inflation, as we're seeing right now, is it erodes the value of money and specifically、um, of people's savings and of people's incomes and all these things. So that in itself may, might not appear to constitute theft. But the question goes comes well, you know, what happens to all that value? Yeah. What's what 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 precisely is the mechanism? Whereby the, the you know the money in your savings account or the money that you earn in your you know monthly paycheck、uh, progressively buys or regressively buys less and less and less、right. as time goes on. What what's the actual mechanism? And the answer is that inflation is nothing more and nothing less than central banks in collusion with the larger banking system increasing the money supply、right. officially. Okay, now when they do that. When they increase the money supply, they don't do it simply by throwing bales of money out of helicopters. Although that's a very commonly invoked metaphor, but in reality, it's a, a somewhat more sophisticated process.、Mm -hmm. The reason being that if if the general populace understood the cause of all of these, you know, generally rising prices, such as we're experiencing right now in the Biden administration, they would be scandalized and outraged. Okay, because what's happening in effect is that more and more money is being printed, and that. Debases the value of the existing stockpile of、right. money. Okay, so that seems clear enough. But the question remains: Okay, so the government creates more money. How exactly does that money find its way from wherever it originates to our bank accounts and our pocketbooks and purses and wallets and the cash registers at the supermarkets and other stores where right, we make、right. our purchases? And the answer is that it's introduced strategically. Well, it, there, there are several ways in which it's done, but one, of the, but the probably the most conspicuous way is what's called open market operations, and this is a system that was originally devised by an American financier and banker named Benjamin Strong, who roughly a hundred years ago was the head of the, the the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. He was not the head of the Federal Reserve per se; he was the head of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, and he was quite the financial genius, a very subtle mind for finance. Now the the Federal Reserve,、uh, they're broken up into twelve districts. Is that correct? Yes, yes. And but but the Federal Reserve Bank of New York has always had a privileged position、mm. within the Federal Reserve. For example, the gold reserves are kept there. They're not kept in Kansas City or something or San Francisco or something like that, right? So、uh, the Federal Reserve is a system. It has a bunch of, as you say, a bunch of different regional banks, but it's centered in New York City, and it is the reason that with all of the changes in the American economy in the last. 110 years since the Federal Reserve was was created, roughly. Okay,、um, the center of finance and financial activity has remained in New York City, and and a large part of that reason for that is that the Federal Reserve depends crucially on these open market operations that Benjamin Strong dreamed up, and now have become、uh, the basis for central bank money creation all around the world, not just in the United States. I mean, all central banks, the ECB, the, the Bank of Japan, and so forth, all know how to do this. And what an, an open open market operations are a more subtle way. Of, as they say in、uh, Fed, Federal Reserve parlance, injecting liquidity into the economy, which means, in effect, putting more money—liquidity in the sense of liquid assets—into the money in the money stock. So instead of, you know, printing bales of money and throwing it out of helicopters or delivering it, you know, conspicuously to people's homes or whatever, they inject it 
via these open market operations. And what happens is that the Federal Reserve purchases government securities, treasury bonds, so right. uh, and pays for them in whole or in part with newly created money. So that the, 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 the new creation of money is part of the, these transactions that occur. The key though is that only a small number of privileged dealers certain very large American banks and investment banks and also some banks yeah. in, in Europe and Asia are authorized dealers at these open market operations. Now, you, you can't just go and transact directly with well, the Federal Reserve, right? I think that segues into one of the main questions I had is because, as I mentioned in my intro, one of the headlines, uh, I believe it was from Fortune or the other one, was that apparently this makes inflation, they were trying to pass off that inflation makes, uh, makes the middle class better off and it, it may harm the rich, but that's not, that's not what you maintain well, in your article and you're saying you're about to go into why it's quite the opposite, right? Well, why, why, it, why it constitutes theft in general. So, so, the, so the, issue, the, the issue is this, the, the money isn't just equally dispersed into the economy. Everybody doesn't have access to all the money right. at the same time. What happens instead is that there are entry points that the, and these entry points are usually these huge commercial banks and hedge funds and investment banks and so forth, so, such that people who have large accounts, controlling interests and so forth, in those organizations, the super rich, they get it first. Always benefit. They get the money first before it has time to ripple out through the economy and cause a general rise in consumer prices. And what it does when it first gets injected is it causes asset prices to skyrocket, specifically stocks mm -hmm. and bonds and commodities and things like this. So this just incredibly, you know, gravity-defying stock market that we've had over the last several decades, it's had its ups and downs, but overall, it's been unprecedented, uh, is all inflationary. It's a result of this very sophisticated system of injecting money at, at certain places and causing the assets of the very small percentage of super rich to just expand exponentially. This yeah. is why, this is the real reason, by the way, that the rich get richer and the poor get poor. So what's happening in effect is that the value of the money that's lost from all of the ordinary savings accounts and CDs and uh, other you know, normal assets that people like you and I might hold, uh, thanks to inflation, is in effect transferred to this upper crust of very elite people that are privileged, have privileged access, and to these elite institutions that are are you know are authorized dealers in this in, in in this whole process of creating new money? That is why it's theft. Can, can you reiterate that? How does that transfer happen? Like you mentioned, that you have these entry points, and was it the asset managers and whatnot? Well, I mean, what you, you they can get see, it first. You can see it. You can see it if you look at the ballooning values of of certain of stocks and commodities, and uh, certain other high priced assets like a college education, which for the super rich is no problem. Right. But for the rest of us, has become an instrument of lifelong debt bondage. I, and I can speak from personal experience again, trying to put my daughter through college right now, right? Um, so those things that are classified as assets, mm -hmm. um, their value, and of course real estate is another thing that, uh, that you know, is, is so they, they expand incredibly fast. And they, but at the bottom end, savings, the value of savings, right. it depreciates, right, right? right? So inflation has the effect I mean, it isn't literally that someone goes out with a, like with a bank account and moves things around and says, okay, I'm going to take the money from, from Paul Dragu's account and I'm going to transfer it to the account of you know, Mr. Rich Moneybags here in Wall Street. That's not what's happening. But the effect is as if it were. 
because Paul and Steve and all the ordinary people out there who are trying to slowly scrimp and save for retirement and pay off their house and so forth and so on find that the money, they're, they're, you know, the, the money they make for their jobs, uh, the money they have in savings is worth less and less and less, while at the same time, the super rich mm-hmm. who have, you know, oh, I don't know, 100 million shares of some large company that, you know, with, with some hedge fund or something, and that, you know, every, and that's increased in its value by, you know, couple thousand percent over the last decade, they're very much the beneficiaries of this process. So it's theft, but of an exceedingly subtle nature. No one's actually pointing a gun or directly embezzling money and, you know, transferring it from one. But the overall system is based on deceit and thievery and very much a transfer of wealth from the many middle class and, you know, poor to the very few ultra-rich. Would this be possible without the Federal Reserve? It would be difficult. I don't know if it's impossible. I mean, yeah. given, given, given the limitless ingenuity of human beings to, you yeah. know, to, uh, to cheat one another, I, I, I can't say that no one would have ever thought of it, but the, but the system we have now is perhaps the worst of all possible worlds because it is at once so incredibly complex and sophisticated that no one person, not even a Ben Bernanke or someone else who really is an inside master bank fully understands all of the, the ins and outs, all of the many artifices with which the, the current fa- financial system is rigged. Now, it's based ultimately on the whole, the modern institution of banking. Okay, so I don't want to just say it's the fault of the Federal Reserve, before, because before the Federal Reserve came along, before America had a central bank, and there was a long period of time when we did not, we still had problems with bankers in plural, uh, cheating people with, with runs on banks, with, with, uh, with, with, with recessions not as great as the Great Depression or the Great Recession uh, no. of 2008. But still, the, these things happened. And um, they happened because the entire premise of so-called fractional reserve banking yeah. is flawed. Okay? Yeah. So even before we had a Federal Reserve, we still had fractional reserve banking. And what that means, what, what that means is that any bank un- under a system of fractional reserves is not required to honor the deposit agreement. So if you deposit money with a bank, okay, uh, legally that, that, that's what's called a bailment. It's more or less equivalent to if you take your car or your, uh, your bulldozer, let's say, and put it in a warehouse and you, uh, you, you arrange with the warehouse guy to pay money yeah. to keep it safe while you're traveling in Europe or you, just because you don't have room for it in your garage or whatever. Okay, so you, but what that agreement does not entail is that he doesn't have the right to then take your bulldozer out and start using it to make money on the side and continue to also charge you money for the service. So that, that would be a violation of the bailment agreement. Okay? Mm-hmm. So, but, but that logic, with a very, very rare exceptions, has never extended to banking. People have, this, have had this idea, and it's not a new idea, that banks are somehow special, that they have a special moral franchise that entitles them to take money that you have put on deposit and loan out a fraction of it, hence the term fractional reserve, uh, to other people. And we all know that this takes place because we all know, almost everybody knows anyway, if you know anything about banking, you know that if everybody who has money on deposit at a given bank at the same time came and demanded their money, they the bank would not, would not have the money, would not even have a, a small part of that money because it's all loaned out. And well, we've come to accept this obli- as normal. They're only legally obligated, though, to keep, was it 10 or 5%? Well, right, because the legal system that's evolved over the last 200 years or so has has defended, you know, has protected this system. But again, it doesn't protect warehouse owners and silo owners and other people, other organizations that have similar bailment yeah. agreements. Like, you know, you can't, you can't do this anywhere else 
bada bang, because of this idea that, you know, that this fundamental misprision, economic misprision that many, many people labor under, which is that money is somehow special. And all of the rules of morality, legality, and economics don't apply to money in the same way that it applies to all other you know, economic activity. Are, are, are there those who would say that this, the, the, the fact that it functions this way is part of the reason for our higher standard of living, right? Because I've done a little reading on this, including a book you, you uh, recommended to me. And it's, again, I have a very basic understanding of this, if any at all, but it seems like one of the, uh, one of the apologies they make for it is that if it weren't for this kind of banking, including you know the Federal Reserve ser serving as the center of this, we wouldn't have the standard of living that we have. Well, first of all, it's impossible to, to be sure because we've never tried what the, the, the moral alternative. However, it has been tried in other times and places. And the, you know, the best example, the textbook example of this, of what's called full reserve banking, mm -hmm. was the Bank of Amsterdam that grew up with the uh, Dutch Republic in the mid-16th century. And uh, until about the mid-1700s, I believe, late 1700s, uh, that bank practiced full reserve banking. Now, what did that mean? That meant that if you brought your gold, silver, or whatever it is you wanted to put in deposit, deposited it in the Bank of Amsterdam, that they would charge you a, a reasonable fee, a nominal fee for the, the warehousing of it, okay? Right. But they would not loan it out or use it as collateral for loans to any other institutions, unless you authorize it. Now, that's a different thing. If you, you can also go to a bank and you can say, okay, I'm going to lend you this money on the understanding that you pay me interest and you also then can lend a portion of it out and try to make money on it by charging more. That's not what we're talking about. That, that's not a demand. A demand account, by law, is when you, in theory, put something in a bank and you have the right to come and demand it at any given time, okay? So the Bank of Amsterdam had this, this core Mm -hmm. of full reserve demand accounts. And during that time period, Amsterdam prospered and grew in a way that no other city has before or since. It went from being a, a medieval city in circa 1550 to quickly creating the world's first modern middle class to the first modern university system, Leiden University. I'm talking about the larger Dutch Republic. Um, Amsterdam, of course, became the center of world finance far ahead of London for a while. It wasn't until the English began to emulate what the Dutch were doing in the 1600s that they too began to experience you know, a modicum of success. Yeah. But, the, but the Dutch Republic was the greatest miracle of progress and improvement. And this, despite the fact that for 70 years, 80, 80 years, they were fighting the 80 years war yeah. against Spain. They were, they were, in many cases, they were completely surrounded by the armies of Spain and her allies on the periphery fighting constantly just to survive. And somehow in that milieu, the, the Dutch Republic turned into this unbelievably wealthy, prosperous society. And at the heart was the Bank of Amsterdam. Now, what kind of a banking system did we have pre-Federal Reserve? As I understand it also is there was, there was a, a lot of effort to finally pass on a, some sort of central banking to Americans. And it finally happened with the Federal Reserve Act of 1913, correct? But before that, um, there was indication that America, again, was still on this path, this trajectory of, of wealth, and we were getting there. Uh, was, uh, you had mentioned the boon and bust, like there were still problems, because that's another thing I hear is it's like, look, the Federal Reserve came in to stabilize some of the banking problems, that uh, the financial type issues that we were having. 
did they make things worse? Did they make it better? Did they alleviate it? Um, okay, well, let's, let, let's, let's unpackage this a little bit. So start with the issue of a central bank. Central banks per se, the very first central bank in world history was actually the Bank of Sweden that was invented in the late 1600s and very shortly after the Bank of England mm -hmm. in the 1690s, about the time of the Glorious Revolution and so forth. was right after the Glorious Revolution, I believe, was chartered. Um, and then after that, other countries began following suit. And when America became independent, one of the major debates among the founders was whether or not to have some sort of a central bank. Now, in those days, central banks did not produce fiat money the way they do today. I mean, right. they, they operated more or less on a gold standard, at least the ones in, in Europe, some of the other countries in the world that didn't have as much gold used a silver standard. But in any case, um, now, they didn't necessarily practice full reserve banking, but they, didn't, they couldn't print money without limit either. Okay, yeah. so, so that's still in the future, although there had already been some experiments in the local level, like the Massachusetts Bay Colony had, uh, had tried paper money uh, to disastrous effect and you know, pretty much ruin the economy. And of course, during the American Revolution, we financed it ultimately with, with, with paper money as well, yeah. and with, which resulted in, in, in hyperinflation that destroyed the American economy, but sometimes such is the price one has to pay for, for war. So after the Revolutionary War was over, after America was, in, was, was independent, there was this debate, should we have a, some kind of a national bank that would, that would act as a mediator between the Treasury Department, the government on the one hand, and private interests and perhaps, you know, the private right. banking sector. People like Alexander Hamilton on the Federalist side argued that we should. Um, and others like Thomas Jefferson, who were, who were very suspicious of such things uh, with good cause, uh, argued that we should not. Hamilton and his Federalists won the day and the first bank of the, of the United States was chartered after the founding. And then the, the, it was after the War of 1812, we ended up with the second bank of the United States and that was the state of affairs that persisted until Andrew Jackson was elected president. Uh, as condition for his election to a second term in office, he staked his entire reputation on his war with a man, a personal war with a man named Nicholas Biddle, who was the head of the Second Bank of the United States, uh -huh. and who was already with the relatively limited tools available in the day. He didn't have computers and uh, the fiat money that we have today, but he still was able to, to some extent, influence the money supply inf by influencing the amount of credit that he, that he would pyramid on top of existing gold reserves in, in, the cent in the central bank. And he actually, in an attempt to discredit Andrew Jackson, he created an, artif you know, an artificial recession to try to kill the economy and make the president look as bad as possible. But in the end, Andrew Jackson, one of his slogans was, you know, you're either going to get me and no central bank or no Bank of the United States, or you're going to get the Bank of the United States and no Andrew Jackson. He said, there's, there's no middle ground. And in the end, he was successfully reelected. Nicholas Biddle and his bank were, were ended yeah. and were decommissioned. And the United States did not have a national bank until 80-some um, years later when the Federal Reserve was then chartered. Now, when the Federal Reserve was created, um, when it came into being, it, uh, America was still nominally on the gold standard. So again, at that time, it still didn't have this limitless ability to create money out of nothing the way it does today. But uh, during the Great Depression, we abandoned the gold standard, and that effectively emancipated the Federal Reserve and the larger banking system to more or less inflate at will. Yeah. There have been about, was it 100 amendments since the Federal Reserve has come into existence? And it seems like, my understanding is that with every amendment, it becomes uh, easier for it to print money and it gives it more control. Uh, and so 
what about all those amendments? Is, is that true? Has it made things worse? Has it? By amendments, you mean changes in the way the Federal Reserve yes. System? But, well, I mean, it's come in fits and starts. So initially, when the Federal Reserve was created, uh, the person who was the chairman of the Federal Reserve, who today has become sort of a celebrity figure in Washington, but in those days, they were a figurehead. Mm -hmm. And the person with the real power initially was Benjamin Strong, who, by the way, was apparently one of the architects of the Federal Reserve who was present at the secret Jekyll Island meeting, okay, uh, to, where, the, where, the, where the Federal Reserve was planned out. We won't yeah. get into that right now, but you can read about that in, in the wonderful book, The Creature from Jekyll Island, the nice, nice account of, 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 all, of all of the machinations that went into, to, to, to bring this about. But anyway, uh, but in the 1930s, I believe in 1932 or thereabouts, a man named Mariner Eccles, was, who was a banker from Utah, was asked to become the new chairman of the Federal Reserve. And as condition of his accepting, he said, in effect, I want more power. Uh, I want more power to make policy. It shouldn't all just be, you know, with a, a, couple, a couple guys in New York City. Uh, otherwise, you know, so he was, he became the first Federal Reserve chairman of consequence and began to make, you know, monetary policy. Now there's, he's the chairman, there's actually a larger board of governors of the Federal Reserve Bank system. Um, obviously in, in, in our lifetime, Ben Bernanke is probably the most con consequential. Mm. And he instituted a very large number of changes in response to the great, uh, what's now called the Great Recession of 2007 to circa 2009, whose effects are still reverberating, uh, including uh, he greatly expanded, at least temporarily, the number of tools, the number of mechanisms that the Federal Reserve had at its disposal to create money. So prior to that economic debacle, mm -hmm. the Federal Reserve was only, you know, only lent money to commercial banks. Right. Okay. And, uh, but after that, it invoked a special clause in Article 13 of its, you know, its own you know, constitution, which said that in times of emergency, it can also learn, lo loan money to selected you know, non-bank entities. And so they began to do this. And so he created a whole series of new, um, and in some cases, temporary um, expedients so that the Federal Reserve could literally lend money to uh, non-bank you know, private businesses. Bear Stearns, for example, mm -hmm. um, received, was, was one of the beneficiaries of Fed largesse, and others that held... Um, um, you know, asset-backed secu back securities and things like this. And this was, some of these programs were, were wound down as the, in, in like in 2009 and then were resuscitated during the COVID crisis a little over, well, basically a decade later. So the Federal Reserve has consistently expanded its power. Yeah. Um, even though in theory when it was set up, it was set up to have somewhat limited powers ostensibly, at least for public consumption, to have limited powers so that it couldn't inflate without limit, as is the case with central banks in places like Argentina, which are notorious for having you know, uncontrolled inflation. Um, the idea was to keep inflation at a manageable or reasonable level. And what does that mean? Well, since its inception, the U.S. dollar, which had a more or less consistent value from the founding of the, of the United States up until 1913, but for in the 110 years since its inception, uh, the Federal Reserve, uh, we, we've seen the U.S. dollar lose an average of, you know, 1.5% per year, maybe in yeah, value, yeah. One, one point, which doesn't sound like a lot until you start thinking, okay. Over 100 years? That, well, over even 10 years. That means that in 10 years, in normal times, when you don't have the sort of 10% inflationary, you know, double-digit inflationary rates that we have right now, you know, the money that you put in your savings account, or if you choose, you know, that you stuff in your mattress, okay, is going to lose more than 10% of its value right. in 10 years. That's a, that's a not insignificant amount, particularly if you have $100,000 in a CD and it loses 10% in 10 years. So 
The, the reason this is important is because even a little inflation discourages and disincentivizes saving and encourages and incentivizes spending, spending and reckless, risky, high-risk investment. And this is the reason that very few Americans put money in old-fashioned savings accounts and uh, CDs and things like this anymore because they know, well, I mean, I recently returned from abroad and I accumulated a bit of money that I'd saved from, from working overseas. And I went to a bank and I, I inquired about a CD and they opened, said something, I'd never had this happen before. They said, well, you know, we don't think you should put the money, the money in CDs, you know, because frankly, it'll lose value because the inflation rate's so high. So just, just don't do it. They actively discouraged their own product, which I'd never seen before. With LCDs, right? can't you accrue interest? Depending you do, but the point is that you're accruing interest. The, the interest lower is... Lower rate than... At slower rate than... Yeah, and, and this is particularly true with a lot of um, things like, for example, what do they used to call those things? Savings bonds. Remember mm -hmm. savings bonds? People used to give them to their grandchildren as gifts yeah. and this sort of thing. And savings bonds, it has been shown, Milton Friedman, for example, showed this years ago, are always, you know, the rate, the rate, the rate of interest that they pay is always conveniently a point or two lower than the average inflation rate. Okay? Good God. So, yeah, so, so, so the point is, and th this is why inflation becomes, in addition to the theft issue that we talked about earlier, the other moral valence of inflation is that it completely changes people's attitudes about money and about things like savings, thrift, um, self-control, you know, such that traditional values like living within your means and uh, if you really want something, save for it first and then pay yeah. for it, uh, and, and, you know, budgeting your money, all of that goes out the window in, a, in an inflationary economy long-term because people learn, well, if I do that, if I play by the, the rules that my grandparents taught me, at best I'll break even. But hey, if I put my money in... In, in real estate or stocks, in assets that are, that are constantly being artificially inflated yeah, yeah. by this process that we talked about, well, then I'll make all kinds of money and so forth and so on. Of course, that works well until you experience a crack-up boom, and then suddenly it doesn't work well anymore, and then people complain that you know, the houses that they've been flipping and all the stocks and their retirement fund and so forth have lost 50% you know, of their value in a couple of days of disastrous trading on the market and so forth. So in the short term, it seems to work well, but in the long term, it doesn't. But on the other hand, in the long term, if you save money, um, it really doesn't work well because it slowly you know, loses. So what are you to do? Well, you could buy gold and silver, I suppose. Yeah. Or perhaps, you know, buy property. Which is part of why there's all those commercials flowing around, birch gold, everything. Anything you listen to as far as anything right of, of you know, central or, or the center. No, but I mean, you know, I, I lived in Argentina years ago during a hyperinflationary episode. I mean, they have, I was just back to Argentina recently and they're complaining about roughly 8 to 10% of inflation per month. When I was there before, it was like 100% or more. <laughs> it was incredible. They just devalued, this was in about 1980, and they just de devalued the currency by, I don't know, 1,000% oh, or something incredible like that. And it was explained to me. Now, those days, I was a teenager. I really didn't understand a lot of this. Yeah. But I did understand that things, that money was really different there than what I knew yeah. in the United States. For example, nobody had money. Why? Because... The moment you got, and it was explained to me very clearly, the moment you got money, you spent it. And if you, were, if you wanted it to be in the, something that would accrue as an asset, you bought property right away, yeah. or you brought cattle right away, or you bought gold and silver if they were available, and all this type of thing. Is that because it, it lost yeah. its value so quickly? So quickly, yeah. They, they knew, you, you know, you got, if you got paid, you didn't stick the money in the bank.
And, and even now, when I went to Argentina just uh, like a month ago, I brought along a bunch of US, US dollars, which is also inflationary, but compared to what they have, you know, it's, it's, it's gold. Almost, it's almost like gold. gold. Yes, yeah, so I was able to get all kinds of things at a, at a wonderful discount because I brought, you know, some quite a bit of cash. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, and and again, then of course, if this regime, inflationary regime, persists long enough, then of course people at least instinctively start to realize there's something not right about this, and yeah. so they begin to do things like disparage the currency, like what's happened. We haven't quite got there yet in the United States, but the Argentines emphatically are there. They don't pay pesos anymore. Just like people in Zimbabwe, they know their money is effectively useless. So they crave a hard currency from abroad, or they get rid of it and try to get gold and silver. And the natural response to that, of course, or they is start it, trading cigarettes, well, right? But, right. <laughs> and, 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 and then and that, of course, starts discrediting the political leadership. And they always respond by cracking down and saying, no, 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 you must use this money. And this is what's happened in Argentina. The people yeah. there can't, or, you know, so there's this huge, what they call blue market, not quite a black market, but a blue market. Uh, where, where people are desperate to try to acquire U.S. dollars. So I made lots of friends when I was in Argentina yeah, yeah. because, you know, everybody wanted, you know, wanted, wanted, wanted dollars. And, but you're strictly limited in, by the, by now, by government decree in Argentina as to how many dollars you get. As far as gold and silver are concerned, forget it. You know, you can't get those things at all. So this is where we're headed in the United States. You think so? Eventually. You think so? Inevitably, what? inevitably, in the long term. And now we're, people would argue, well, we're already in the long term, but look at, look at what's happened just in the last few years. You know, some of these chickens, the inflationary chickens are starting to come home to roost. Wow. And yeah. it's not entirely Biden's fault. Uh, he certainly added fuel to the fire, but his predecessor and his predecessor's predecessor, you know, Trump and, and you know, Obama before him and W before him, they were all you know, borrowing and spending and creating money and so forth. Well, let's, let's talk about that because then I want to go back to maybe people are probably going to want to know. It's like, well, if this is where it's going, what's... But before we go to that, uh, one of the things I'm most interested in is that people, I don't know if they understand that this system, this money system that we have helps perpetuate these never-ending wars and conflicts. Can you explain how, how, that, how our current money system makes that possible? Sure. Well... Uh, not just wars, but all aspects of, of, of big government, the behemoth government that we have today, of point, which yeah. the military and the war is probably the most... And the welfare you know, most, system, right? Yeah, like all this stuff. If, 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 if governments had to pay for such things by honest, upfront taxation, mm -hmm. uh, people would never stand for it. And of course, this has happened in the past, even with something as serious as war. The people have stood up their own government and said, no, we're not going to fight a war if it means paying, oh, mm. I don't know, 30%, 40%, 50% in taxes yeah. in perpetuum, just to fund a war against some other country that we don't even care about. But the beauty of inflation is that you don't have to pay for it up front because all you do, and, and, and this is where, this is the really interesting part of the system, all you need to do is borrow the money and then monetize the debt. Monetize the debt is what happens when that debt is exchanged or sold to the Federal Reserve and converted into new money, right? Mm -hmm. So you, you borrow the money first, you create the debt, then you use the debt as a platform to create new money, monetizing the debt, and prices rise, but nobody knows why, because it's such a complex system. Yeah. And, you know, people understandably have better things to do than try to figure out all of the, the, these arcane twists and turns in the financial system. So they see prices going up and they never realize, well, that's actually because of all this debt being converted to money to fund, you know, illicit wars and welfare state policies and all this other garbage that, that, mm -hmm. the, that our government and other modern governments as well indulge in, um, which, of course, 
in turn empower and strengthen political leaders because they pose as saviors. You know, we won the war, we, say, you know, we conquered poverty, we conquered this, we conquered that. And they did it, most of it through the ins- instrumentality of all this funny money that's yeah. being created by this, this bizarre you know, debt-for-dollar system that we have, the fiat money system. Have they really? I mean, I don't, my understanding is that uh, poverty hasn't been conquered. Well, of course, in the long run, Some would say the great society hasn't been established. Well, and war hasn't ended either. But but it's it's certainly not a coincidence that the beginning of the modern financial system that we have now, uh, it's not an accident that the Federal Reserve was set up right about the same time World War I was starting, Mm -hmm. and that most of the Western world, with the exception of Switzerland, went off the gold standard in the 1920s and 1930s. In fact, right. some of those countries went off the gold standard. The, 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 the most hard-beset nations of Europe in World War I, they went off the gold standard during World War I and never went back because they simply couldn't afford to fund this endless war where nobody was really winning. They were just, just lobbing you know, ammunition at each other from trenches you know, month after month after month. That stuff cost an incredible amount of money. This seems so crazy. It almost seems like some sort of sorcery because you're like... You got to give it. It it seems very um, clever. You know, it's like, oh, we can't in reality, if we were to abide by the rules, we couldn't afford all this stuff. You know, the the Congress would never approve it because the voters would never approve it. So we'll figure out a way to where, first of all, we can bypass congressional approval, but then uh, we can just keep funding it, but not with real anything of value. That's what the fiat money is, right? It used to be attached to gold and silver, and then it was no longer attached to gold, right? Then we detached it from silver, and now it's nothing. It's paper. It's paper that, that, that has value purely and simply because people ascribe value to it. And it's the only, faith value. And the only reason they do, the only reason they have any confidence in it is they do not know. I was going to say they that. They don't understand. If they understood, as Keynes once famously said, you know, inflation is such a subtle mechanism that not one person in 100,000 can understand its true cause. Good cause. Now, the corollary is that if people could understand it, if, 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 if the generality of the public you know, knew what inflation was and could diagnose it, it would never be able to subsist because people would realize that it's this sort of grand larceny on an incredible, really on an international scale. We don't have time to get into that, but yeah. it has international as well as national consequences. Look, you keep saying like it's so complex, and I think you may have even said something to the effect that nobody really understands. Now, if this is planned, it's some sort of clever plan, how does that, well, how, how do you marry the two? The fact that it is part of a plan, but yet someone has to understand that if it's if it's this elaborate plan, well, right? I mean, to it's, some degree. It's understood, understood in the sense that people understand, you know, there, there's you know, the money multiplier equation and all this. So there is some math that goes into yeah, it. There's yeah. a way that central bankers know how to compute. Well, if we change the interest rate by so much, this will have the, the following effect on the overall, you yeah. know, the money supply traditionally. I mean, there, there, are, there are loosely speaking mathematical mm-hmm. laws that govern this. But... Ultimately, the arguments in beha- on behalf of a fiat money system are the same as the arguments for any other type of planned economy. And they rely on the irrational supposition that there exists a small group of people, armed with supercomputers perhaps, but nevertheless a small group of people who are, who are uniquely intelligent and uniquely gifted and insightful, such that they can plan without any major problems something as complex as a monetary system. Mm-hmm. So it's an odd thing. And I mean, you know, I mean, a good example of this is the so-called monetary school, the Chicago School of, of Economics, which in most respects 
It was pioneered by the likes of Milton Friedman, a Nobel Prize winning mm -hmm. uh, economist. And he was a very, in fairness to him, he was a very eloquent defender of freedom uh, and limited government in most respects. But the conspicuous point of the Chicago School is that, you know, laissez-faire economics and the free market works everywhere except with money. And right. with money, money is somehow special and therefore you have to, it has to be centrally planned through the instrumentality of a Federal Reserve System or some other comparable banking system. Okay, so we've talked about all the things that are wrong with our current money system. How would a perfect money system, what would that look like? Well, I don't know if there's any such thing as perfection in this well, fallen a world. Good, <laughs> a, a good one, one that makes sense sure. in that, you know, without inflation, where that doesn't deteriorate. Well, I would, I would argue that a perfect system, you know, in a coming day, perhaps of a more enlightened humanity, we would have something like this. On the one hand, we would have full reserve banking as far as the deposit function is concerned. Can you define that again? Well, what we said uh, regarding the Bank of Amsterdam, in other words, if you, banks would not be allowed to, uh, to create new money. None? They have to, no, the no, only it, thing they can loan is what they, they have? Well, but the thing is you can also, I mean, you can, like for example, when you put money in a CD in the bank, that's technically not a, say, that's not a demand account because a C, that's why there's a term associated with a CD. And if you withdraw the money before the term expires, there's a penalty mm -hmm. because that contract means, yes, I'm loaning the money to the bank. They're paying me interest over, uh, over an agreed upon period of time. And they do have the right then to turn around and loan that money out to someone else and make interest on it. But I have to leave it there. But I have to leave it there. So there's no double claim on the money. Mm -hmm. That's the point. Yes. So the fact that there's no double claim means that that $20,000 in my CD or whatever it is, uh, is not going to magically become 40000 or something because it's actually being used for two purposes and the bank is assuming and hoping against hope that I don't come by and claim it. Okay, mm -hmm. But a demand account is different. So it would require a legal system that would clearly distinguish between the deposit function and, uh, and, and the associated demand you know, requirement, uh, you know, a demand account and basically a loan account. I mean, it would still be legitimate to come to a bank and say, okay, let's see, I've got this money. I don't need it for the next two years. You can have it as long as you pay me some money. I won't touch it. I'll sign a, right. a, a contract to that effect, and you in turn can loan it out. That's perfectly legitimate. Yeah. What's not legitimate is if I say, I'm coming here with $100,000. I'm going to open a checking account or a demand savings account, right? Yeah. And, and the, my assumption is that I can come and, and, and access any, any portion of that at any time. And the bank agrees to do that, but we both sort of know that they aren't really going to do that, right? So there's that moral ambiguity. That needs to be gotten rid of, first thing. Second thing, um, Precious there would be a, well, we had, you know, in the United States, we, we never had a gold standard. We had a bimetallic standard, which is different. Um, that means that, and this was established by the U.S. Constitution. I think it's a, it's a good idea. Although, I mean, there were, there were some, it's not a perfect system because the value of gold and silver with respect to one another always fluctuates a little bit. So there are people, you know, on the libertarian side who argue that only a gold standard would really avail us. Yeah, yeah. But... I would so you know one way or the other. I would say you would want to have a you want to have what's called um, well fiduciary money would probably work. There are three types of money. Okay, so um, commodity money is when you only recognize you only have gold and silver yeah. or grain or copper or something else, and that's your money right there. Okay? okay. Now, obviously, fiat money is when none of that exists and it's only paper or some kind of other evanescent thing mm -hmm. like a computer entry that that stands for money. In the middle is what's called fiduciary money. And that's what we had in general. Now, fiduciary money means money that is either commodity money or stands in representation thereof. So if I'm a bank and you come and deposit a certain amount of gold and silver and I issue 
you know, a bill, a, note, a claim note on that, and then you go out and use that as money with the understanding that you, it can be fully redeemed at any time. That's a fiduciary type agreement, and that I think is, is valid as well. Yeah, I um, thought, I mean, you know. by that definition, I thought that was my impression that that's what the precious metal standard was. But well, I mean, again, the, the, there are two types of precious metal standards, yeah. so that, because there are, there are more or less three types of money. Okay? Okay. So, now, one other thing, a question people often ask, they have this derogatory term, gold bug, after the famous uh, Edgar Allan Poe short story. Uh, and a gold bug is someone who dogmatically insists on the need for a gold standard. Yeah. And um, so gold bugs are portrayed by mainstream uh, economists as being really these fanatics. Okay, so the question, it, and it's a valid question, and you kind of alluded to it earlier when you said, well, now hasn't you know, the, the current system been responsible for all this prosperity and, and so forth and so on? Well, um, why is gold such a good thing as far as money is concerned? Well, because of the characteristics of gold. And here are a few of them. Number one, it's portable. It can be carried from place to place. And that might seem silly, but it might seem obvious, but some cultures like the Yap Islanders of the Pacific Ocean had gigantic stones <laughs> as money. And that's interesting. They're very but you can't carry them around. They're not very convenient. Right? Well, so, I mean, they'd be hard to exchange too, right? Right. So gold is very portable. It's also very divisible. So you can divide it into smaller units. That's a useful characteristic. Um, it lasts forever. Yeah, it's durable, huh? It's durable. So durability is another characteristic. Paper certainly is not, yeah. okay? Um, it's scarce. And uh, we'll actually, let's come back to scarce minute. It's, it's useful, inherently useful in the sense that it's used in many other things besides money, right. which confers a certain amount of, of value independent of mm. its use for money because gold is used in machinery and jewelry and all kinds of other things. So it's inherently useful. And then finally, it's scarce. And this is the most crucial. Okay, why is scarcity so important? Uh, because that means that governments cannot manipulate the supply. Governments and banks are limited by something that is just abundant enough that people can use it for money. I mean, something like platinum, which is much rarer than gold, is, is probably not easily enough obtained to right. be practical as money, right? And something like uh, nickel or copper, I mean, we use it sometimes in small denominational coins, but it's too common and abundant yeah. to, be, you know, to, to be a standard. Uh, that, we kind of learned this over thousands of years of, of trial and error. So gold is the perfect thing for money, and, and, and the most important of those five attributes is the scarcity. Yeah. Because it means that no one can monkey with the supply. And this is the reason that prior to the institution of the modern fiat money system at the beginning of the 20th century, okay, uh, it was possible to, you know, to the extent that we have data at all, you could look at prices back through history and see that prices really didn't change, generally. Yeah. There would be occasional blips here and there if there's an earthquake or a flood or a crop failure or something. That's not inflation. That's different. And, so, and a very wise economist pointed out that if you looked at the cost in ancient Rome in gold or silver, if you prefer, for uh, you know, a, a nice toga, a pair of sandals, a sash, the equivalent of a modern day you know, business suit, it was about the same in gold, reckoned in gold, as the cost of a, of a three-piece suit yeah. circa 1900. No kidding. Right. So the, the similar, not identical articles, of course, but more or less commensurable articles wow. um, in That's different amazing. cultures. Over 2,000 years, the pricing really didn't change very much. You know, it's interesting because you mentioned being a teenager. I was not, I was nowhere near as awake. You were awake. never a teenager? No, I was not awake. I was not thinking of, about anything remotely like this. But 
over it's just recently that I realized that inflation is not a normal thing or the uh, rising in prices is not a normal thing. It doesn't have to be. And I think that outlook is representative of how a lot of people look at uh, at money and things like that. It's like prices just rise, you know, when, you know, grandparents will tell you, you know, 60 years ago, we bought that house for 30,000 and it's just accepted. Well, obviously that house today is like, you know, 170 and that's just the way things are going to be. And then in another 50 years, it'll be more than that. And that's, you know, it's accepted as that. But it's like the the truth is it doesn't. It doesn't. Prices don't have to to always be surging, and this is a result of inflation. Well, I mean, I mean, the first in the first hundred plus years of the American Republic, what you had, on the one hand, was a, a continual surge in prosperity and in the standard of living, coupled with more or less steady prices. Yeah, that's incredible. Particularly commodity prices like bread and things like that. Yeah. There was no inflation. Right. So, I mean, in many sense, you know, the, the, the United States pre the U.S. Federal Reserve came close to circle back to your earlier question of being a more or less ideal system with the caveat that we should not have permitted fractional reserve banking. Yeah. Could this get any worse? Oh, absolutely. Just ask the people in Argentina or Zimbabwe or Russia or any other country that suffered from hyperinflation. And you, and you were saying this is... So-called runaway inflation. And you're saying that it's inevitable. That's... What what could people do to well it, it's to prepare maybe or maybe even try to write write the track or is it in your opinion is it uh, is it too late? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, it's never too late. There you Dum go. Spiro pugno, as they used to say. <laughs> um, but um, I think that uh, in my opinion, people should be prudent. Uh, there's a reason that I mean, first of all, the super wealthy all understand pretty much everything we've been talking about, yeah. A, and B, they seldom talk about it. I remember one time when someone asked Donald Trump, either right before he became president or you know, soon after, I think it was during his first presidential campaign, asked him about this issue about inflation. And, and, and his, he sort of smiled and said, Shh, we don't want to talk about that, yeah. or something like that. So he knows. So they all you know. know. They, they all it's just us poor people. They all know. understand, and, they, and at some point they made a decision, well, I, I want to be a player. And to be a player, I'm going to have to sort of even, even if I privately, yeah, play the game, even if I privately see, you know, the immorality of the mm-hmm. system. So what does the ordinary person do? I mean, I mean, aside from obviously what we do at the John Birch Society, which is educate people. Yeah. And, and let me just, before I answer that question, let me say tangentially that that is a very hard thing to do with regard to this issue yeah. because it's so boring. Yeah. It's so complicated. <laughs> okay, you remarked to me before we went on air that you'd been reading a book on inflation yeah. and that you found it to be very difficult <laughs> um, you know, because if you're not used to thinking about this kind of thing, it's sort of like, you know, trying to learn calculus or something. After, after a while, it becomes second nature if you do yeah. it enough. But when you first start, uh, it's like you have to rewire your brain to figure out how to, how, to, how to solve, you know, integrals and things like this. You know, it's just something that you're not used to doing. And thinking about these types of issues is something that doesn't necessarily come naturally to any of us. Well, you have would- to work. I would imagine the component it. of complexity also makes it uninteresting and hard for us to understand. I mean, I don't, I don't know if it's because of the way my brain is wired or it's because it truly is complex and most, for most people, uh, for most normal people. So that kind of deters us from diving yeah. deeper and, and understanding. And then when we understand things, we tend to talk to people, and whether it be the dinner table or having their coffee. their eyes glaze over. Yeah, yeah. But <laughs> sure. if you talk about this stuff, they're like... Mm. Uh, yeah, can we talk about something else? Because I don't get it and I'm uninterested. And it's, this is really for the consequences that are involved. It's, 
it's a shame. It's yeah. a shame that, you know, people like me and others, don't, we don't understand this, so we can't uh, accurately and articulately talk about it because I, I would think then people would be able to uh, wake up. You know, you mentioned Creature from Jekyll Island and uh, G. Edward Griffin, of course, he, he, he wrote it and, you know, we, we were the first to publish it. But I was at a Red Pill conference in South Dakota a couple of years back, and everyone had a copy of that book. Obviously, it makes sense because, you know, it's his, it's his conference. So I was kind of wondering, it's like, do you guys all know what you read in that? Because, you know, and I guess maybe they, they have, you know. And so Ed managed to make that, I think, somewhat engaging, uh, engaging and understanding. Mm -hmm. Of course, Creature from Jekyll Island, you would never think it's about banking. Okay, last question. I know we're, we're kind of we're over there. Uh, what, uh, what do the internationalists would want money to look like? And what should we be aware of? Well, there's, there's one thing that they really want in the worst possible way that they didn't get. And that is they would like to see a single global currency being manufactured by a single global central bank. Okay. We know this is true because that is what they tried to do at the Bretton Woods Conference in 1944. It's held in Bretton Woods, uh, New Hampshire, which is a, at a resort hotel called the Mount Washington Hotel. And um, a bunch of global dignitaries led by America's Harry Dexter White, Assistant Secretary of State. Which was a commie. Wasn't he a commie? Yeah, yeah sure. That's, he, he <laughs> That's was. Right. Go on. He was a communist agent. But anyway, who wasn't back in those days? Uh, or today, for that matter. Um, and, uh, and, and leading the British delegation was the economist John Maynard Keynes, who's probably familiar to most of our listeners, yeah. at least in name. Okay? Now, Keynes was... The guy was the real mover and shaker. He was sort of the James Madison, if you will, of this particular thing. He was the guy that yeah. had it all planned out the same way James Madison pretty much planned out how he wanted the Constitutional Convention to go mm -hmm. under very different circumstances and for very different motives. Keynes came to Bretton Woods prepared with an entire agenda. And uh, being an economist and having mastered all of these, 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 these arcana that we've been you know, talking about for the last however long we've been talking about them. I think it's 50 minutes. 50 minutes, okay. All right, well, anyway, he, he was planning, and a large part of his plan was to not only to make, well, I mean, when, when the, let me back up just a little bit. So during the Great Depression, um, the, the, the decade or so preceding World War II, pretty much all of the Western countries had gone off the gold standard yeah. from about circa 1915 to 1935-ish, okay? Mm -hmm. And uh, with the exception of Switzerland and a couple other countries, I think Canada was actually last. It was later than the United States. And Switzerland re remained on the gold standard. Anyway, and as a result of this, because there was no longer an international gold standard, anything like this, against which their, their currencies could be valued, they began playing games with the relative va exchange values of currencies to, to achieve political objectives. These were called beggar thy neighbor policies. Because you can do this when your currency is no longer tethered to gold. Yes. You know, and I mean, prior to that time in the gold standard, the, you know, the, the franc, the lira, the mark, the dollar, the pound were all just different denomination uh, designations of amounts of gold. Right. So you couldn't do that. But when, when gold was taken out of the picture, you could play these games. Okay. And so Keynes' response to this, the, 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 the chaos, the so-called currency wars of the 1930s and the lead up to World War II was to say at Bretton Woods, well, he, wasn't, he didn't say, well, let's bring back the gold standard. What he did say was, let's get rid of all these different currencies and have one global fiat currency, and we're going to call, he had a name for it, the Bancor, which comes from the French words banque, 
and ore. Ore means gold, ironically enough. Okay? And let's have them issued by a single global central bank modeled after the Bank of England or the American Federal Reserve or something like that, and there will no longer be any dollars yeah. or pounds. Because of lingering sovereignty, you know, national pride, the countries, intends, particularly the United States, said, no way, that's a, that's a non-starter. So the backup position was, oh, okay, 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 well, forget about that then. What we'll do instead is we'll make the dollar. The, 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 reserve. The, the, the reserve currency of the world. And that made the rest of the world, and we'll tether all the other currencies in effect yeah. to the dollar. And we'll tether the dollar very tenuously to gold. And I won't go into all of that. But suffice it to say that that was the compromise position. So we, we, we retained this, this system of sort of international chaos, all these different fiat currencies. They had a, a, some, an organization called the Inter Bank of International Settlements, mm -hmm. which was set up in the 1930s, actually, to, to, to help try to mitigate this yeah. problem. Um, and that's what we have to this day. And um, so the, the, the goal, the long-term goal is very simple. They want a single global currency, a single uh, global central bank, international central bank, presumably allied to the UN system, that would be the emitter of said currency. Mm -hmm. And that would be a single global source of global inflation and global enrichment of global elites at the expense of all the rest of us. Thank you very much, Steve. I'm going to have to have you back on, and we're going to have to... We need to discuss solutions at some point. We don't have time today, but that we would be a good We can do a part, too, yeah. But there's a lot of good stuff in here, and uh, we're going we're gonna to ship this out, and we're going to break it up in sections and, and hope to help people understand uh, this more, because this is so crucial and so consequential. Thank you so much for your time. And Thank you. You'll be back for solutions. Well, folks, there's a reason JBS founder Robert Welch created an organization dedicated to education. Inflation is a great example of how a conventionally false narrative has eroded not only our savings and standard of living, but our liberties. The worst part about it, like with most consequences of government involvement, it never had to happen. So please help others learn the true definition and the causes of inflation and what it'll take to put an end to it. We'll have Steve back on to, to help us out with some of that. And please share this episode and Steve Bonta's story from the Great Reset Collector's Edition. Heck, buy a few copies of this great issue and give it out to friends and family for Christmas. And visit the JBS and the Fed Action Project, where we truthfully discuss the problems and ways to restore sound money. We need to restore sound money. The future of this country depends on it. And to do so, we need to help educate as many Americans as possible and enroll them in the John Burr Society Educational Army. Check out the links in the description to help you get started. And until next time, remember that the answer to inflation is freedom, as it is with every other societal problem.